Hi, this is Kale Clark. Welcome to the Faith Explained on Relevant Radio and the Relevant Radio app. I'm so excited to share this episode with you. It's part two of our series on the O antiphons for this last octave before Christmas. We talked about the first three of the seven O antiphons. And again, these are prayed as part of the Liturgy of the Hours and the days starting on December the 17th, leading all the way up to the 23rd. Now, of course, the 24th, Christmas Eve, there's sort of a another prayer that is prayed. But these are prayed by clergy, bishop, priests, deacons, also by many monks and nuns, religious, some lay people as well. Many lay people, in fact, all around the world take part in the Liturgy of the Hours. It's a great universal prayer of the church. And these beautiful O antiphons are prayed during Vespers, around the time of the praying of the Magnificat. And they really speak to the longing, the the desire for Christ in the old covenant time that has now come to pass. And so these are really titles of the coming Messiah that stem from Scripture. And we've looked at the first three, as I said in the last episode, and you can check the podcast if you missed it. Title number one is O Sapientia, which means O Wisdom, O Adonai, O Lord. The third one is O Radix Jesse, O Root of Jesse, and that's where we left off. So now let's look at the fourth O Antiphon, which is prayed on December the 20th every year during Advent, O Key of David, O Clavis David. And so here's how this prayer goes, and very often, like I said, it's chanted, it is sung, O key of David and scepter of the house of Israel, you open and no man closes. You close and no man opens. Come and deliver us from the chains of prison who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death. Uh, This is just beautiful. And there's an ancient prophecy, by the way. Now, this is interesting because it speaks of the scepter of the house of Israel in Numbers 24, 17, there's a very famous prophecy by Balaam. It's about the scepter and the star, and it was always seen to be messianic. And so this idea of the scepter, the one who holds the ruling scepter of Israel, this is power, power in the kingdom of God. And so we have this also in the New Testament as well. This is a, this is a famous passage from the book of Revelation. We once did a, a great series on Revelation on the faith explained which is still in the archives on the website you can check it out and in revelation chapter three this is part of the seven letters that jesus kind of dictates to the apostle john he's got a message for seven different churches in the new covenant time and here's the message to the church at philadelphia not philadelphia pennsylvania but philadelphia in asia minor jesus says to john to the angel of the church in philadelphia write Got your scribal pen ready, John? The words of the Holy One, the true one, who has the key of David, who opens and no one shall shut, who shuts and no one opens. I know your works. Behold, I have set before you an open door, which no one is able to shut. I know that you have but little power, and yet you have kept my word and have not denied my name. And then it goes on. But Jesus says, I have the key of David. I'm holding it. What I open, no one can shut. And what I shut, no one can open. This is actually a beautiful biblical image, which comes from the Old Testament. It's rooted in Isaiah chapter 22. And as we've said, these O antiphons, a lot of them have their root 
in the book of Isaiah. And in Isaiah chapter 22, verse 22, it talks about the key of David. And what's the context here? In David's kingdom, there was a second in command. When the king was away, when the king was on vacation, or when the king was out at war, who was in charge of the kingdom? It was the chief steward or the prime minister, the major domo, if you will. And he had the key. That's how you knew who was in charge when the king was away. The one who has the key of David. It says, I will lay the key of the house of David upon his shoulder. He will open and no one will shut. He will shut and no one will open. This is from Isaiah 22. So how do you know who has the power? It's whoever is holding the key. And just as even today, when we want to honor somebody, whether it's someone from the world of sports or politics or of notable achievement, we often will give them the key to the city, whatever that might be, the key to the city of Chicago. Well, there's no actual gate with a lock for the city of Chicago. It's a, it's a ceremonial thing. But in the ancient world, that wasn't the case. Ancient cities did have gates to protect from bandits, marauders, other armies. And there was, in fact, a key that would open the gates. So this is where the, this image really comes from. It was a real thing in the ancient world. And of course, we know this. This is a great image for the papacy as well, because while the king, Jesus, is away, he's still ruling the kingdom. He's not an absentee king, but he is ruling from heaven. We can't see him where he is right now. But we do know the one who is in charge of the kingdom on earth until he returns, and that is the Pope, the successor of St. Peter, the holder of the keys. This is what Jesus said to Peter in the New Testament. To you, and this is singular you, by the way. It's not you guys. It's you, Peter. To you, I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. Whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. This is very, very important. Whatever you open, whatever you shut, whatever you lock, whatever you unlock, it's going to be done. So this is really... uh, emphasized the keys are obviously a symbol of power and authority but the greatest authority that's given to the church is the authority to forgive sins to dispense the grace of god and this is what happens in confession the keys that have been given to peter and passed on to her ministers in the future this is how christ unlocks us from the prison of satan and sin in which we're enchained at times by our our evil inclinations and by our our bad deeds. And so we've got to be set free. We're sitting in the darkness of a dungeon. Christ has given those keys to unlock the door and let us out and go free so we can see the light. And in this case, the light of the coming Messiah, the Christ at Christmas time. So what what passions that that are not in accord with the will of God, what evil enticements do we have to rid ourselves from this Advent, so we can truly celebrate his coming. I encourage you to get to confession if you need to in these days before the feast. So that's the key of David. And now let's go to the next one, O Oriens, which means O rising sun. And of course, it refers to the Oriens, the rising of the sun in the east. And here we have the next O Antiphon, which really kind of takes its cue, not from the book of scripture, but from the book of nature of which God is the author as well, don't you know? So this idea of the rising sun, this is a great image of the coming Redeemer, the approaching Messiah at Christmas time. He is the dawn of justice. He is the rising sun. He is the radiance of eternal light. And so we see this in the Old Testament. There are many uh, passages uh, that kind of 
I was going to say shed light on this. That's a, that's a terrible pun. But we know that Jesus called himself the light of the world. The light of the world. He also says, I am the life. I am the way, the truth, and the life. And no one comes to the Father but through me. And that's John 14, 6. And this is what the actual physical sun, that blazing fireball in the heavens, that's what it gives to the world. Life, light, warmth, joy, vitamin D. We, we get it all. Now, whenever the, the, the sun is not there, um, things can be kind of dark, quite literally. And this is an image of life without God, life without the light of Jesus Christ. We don't know where we're going. We can only walk by the light. So the second divine person of the Trinity, our Lord Jesus Christ, he is the eternal light. And in the creed, what do we say? We say, light from light, true God from true God. The light that Christ has has to do with his relation with the Father and the power of the Holy Spirit. It's very important. In the book of Malachi in the Old Covenant, he mentions in chapter 4, verse 2, the son of justice. And so that those rays of justice, the rays of grace, the rays of holiness, just, just what, what the sun does for the natural world, Jesus does for our supernatural life and in the supernatural world. He brings about ultimate justice, ultimate holiness, got to become saints, and the very life, the grace of God. But a lot of people don't have that light. And this is what we're called to do this Advent. We are called to bring people again into the light, out of the darkness, so that they can be led by the truth, the light of truth. And there, there are so many people living in the shadow of death, as one of the Psalms says, Psalm 23. They need to let the light shine in, and we can help them do just that. You're listening to The Faith Explained on Relevant Radio. I'm your host, Kale Clark. All right, we've got two more here of these famous O antiphons to go. Let's look at the next one, O Rex Gentium in Latin, which means O King of the Nations. And here's the O Antiphon that's prayed during Vespers on December the 22nd as part of this octave before Christmas. O King of the Gentiles and the desired of all, you are the cornerstone that binds two into one. Come and save us poor men whom you have fashioned out of clay. And so this is really interesting. The, the, the king of the Gentiles, desired of all, the cornerstone, the cornerstone that binds two into one. Now, what, what, what two are bound into one? Well, if you think about a cornerstone of a building, there are two walls which converge at the cornerstone. It kind of locks them together. And that cornerstone really speaks to us, of course, of the temple in Jerusalem. And you can still see, if you go to Jerusalem, the, the massive stones from the Western Wall, the Wailing Wall, that still remain from that great second temple that was finished under Herod the Great, that was there when Jesus walked in those temple precincts himself. But now he's building another temple, and it's been very fashionable uh, for messianic prophecists, if you will, pro would-be prophets to say, that there has to be a third temple that is built before the Messiah can return. Well, guess what? It's already being built. It's already happening. And it involves you and me. It's called the church because the church is this third temple, if you will, of living stones. And St. Peter says this in one of his letters, you and I are like living stones that God is building into a spiritual temple. And that is the church. And by the way, 
just as two walls are bound into one by the cornerstone, two different groups of people, the Jews and the Gentiles, come together and are being built into one church. And this is exactly what St. Paul has talked about in his letter to the Ephesians. It's very, very important. In Ephesians chapter 2, verse 14, he says, Christ is the, the peacemaker. And, and it's kind of interesting. As he's building the church, he's also tearing down another wall, the dividing wall between Jew and Gentile. All peoples will come into the one church. And that's why it's Catholic. That's why it's universal. It means it's for all people at all times in all places on planet Earth until Christ returns because he wants one church, one shepherd. He's building one spiritual temple. So this is the amazing thing about the church. And that's why this O Antiphon, O King, O King of the Gentiles. That's why even in the Old Testament, it was seen that God would be the the King of the Gentiles as well as of the Jews. The cornerstone that binds, binds the two into one. Come and save us poor men and women whom you fashioned out of clay. So this is kind of interesting because even in the book of Jeremiah, chapter 10, verse 7, it talks about God as the king of the Gentile nations. The desired of all nations shall come. The Messiah himself is called the chief cornerstone in Isaiah chapter 28, verse 16. Again, the book of Isaiah figures very largely in these O antiphons. Behold, I will lay a stone as the foundation of Zion, a tested stone, a cornerstone precious and firmly set. If one believes, he will not be shaken. And of course, Jesus himself said that he was the chief cornerstone in Matthew's gospel, Matthew 21, verse 42. So you you can't have a building without the solid cornerstone. And Jesus is that solid source of unity for all of us. I love this. I absolutely love this. And so we've got to understand that we've, we've got to tell our fellow men and women that they are welcome in the church that the church is for them. It's Catholic. It's for everyone. The Great Commission is for you and for me as well. So we have to pray, your kingdom come, your will be done, not only in our lives, but in the lives of every single person with whom we come into contact. We've got to bring them into the church as well through word and deed. So that's uh, the sixth one, the sixth of the O Antiphons, O Rex Gentium, O King of the Nations. But there's one more, O Emmanuel, the seventh and final of the O Antiphons. And this, of course, is uh, beautifully rendered with this prayer. And again, sometimes it's chanted, sometimes it is sung when people pray it. O Emmanuel, and Emmanuel, of course, means God with us. O Emmanuel, our King and Lawgiver, the expected of nations and their Savior, come and save us, O Lord, our God. This is beautiful. And we we not only ask the Messiah Jesus to save us, we're also asking him to stay with us. Stay with us, Lord. Just like the disciples on the road to Emmaus. They didn't really know who it was. They didn't really recognize the Lord, but they said, stay with us. We want to hear more from you. Our hearts are on fire in your presence. And that's certainly true of the infant Emmanuel, how precious he is. We, We just want to hold him and kiss him, if you will and hug him and celebrate his birth. And when we see the, the infant Christ uh, laid in the, in the Christmas crash, we see this beautiful human heart of our Lord that he didn't spare himself from anything. 
in human life. When he became incarnate, he could have, he's God, he could do anything. He could have appeared as a human already as an adult in the prime of his life. He, he didn't, he, why did, he didn't have to become an embryo in the womb of the Virgin and go through all these stages of growth, go through birth, have to learn how to walk and talk and people had to feed him, his mother had to feed him. And he was totally vulnerable. But but he he this way we can never say to God, you don't know what it's like. You don't know what it's like to to live my life and everything I'm dealing with here. He does. He really does. He experienced the hardship of life in this world. And he wants to take us to the next world. And and just as he shared in our human nature, he which he still has, by the way, kept it after the resurrection. He wants us so he longs for us to share his divine life. As one of the fathers of the church said, God became man so that man could become God. Now, that doesn't mean that we become divine. This doesn't mean that we become gods on our own planets as the Mormons teach. No, that is absolutely not true. We are still creatures, but we share in the divine life. And this is what the New Testament promises. How do we do that? With God's grace. He has to impart his grace in baptism. It's, of course, strengthened through the other sacraments. If we lose it through mortal sin, it's restored in confession. And this, this divine life, we're divinized, as St. Peter says. This helps us to live the life of Christ in our human bodies, which, which are good. God is never going to take them away. He's gonna, we're separated from them at a time of death, but we get them back at the resurrection. And so not only in this uh, O antiphon does it say O Emmanuel, it also says, O Emmanuel, our king and lawgiver, the expected of nations and their savior. Come and save us, O Lord and our God. So there's other titles here, not just Emmanuel, but King, Lawgiver. And by the way, again, once again, we go back to the book of Isaiah, Isaiah 32, verse 22. The Lord is our judge. The Lord is our lawgiver. The Lord is our king. He himself will save us. This is a beautiful expression uh, that we have from the old covenant. We can have confidence in him. And Christ really fulfills all of those roles. He's not only God with us, but he's also the lawgiver, He's the judge. Moses, of course, was the original lawgiver, but Christ gives us the new law on the Mount of Beatitudes. Read the Sermon on the Mount. This is, this is life lived from the inside out. God changes us within so that we can uh, obey his directives without on the outside. And he, when, again, we approach the Christmas crash and we see the infant Christ there. This is our judge at the end of time. But look how he humbles himself. Before. We don't need to be afraid of him. We don't need to be afraid of him as a harsh judge. He's not going to send lightning bolts. He wants to forgive us. He wants to, to, to reconcile you to himself. And this is, this is what we have to remember. And, and St. Jose Maria Escrivá said, when you approach Jesus at the end of your life, for you, it will simply be Jesus. You don't need to think of him as a, as a harsh judge. No, he wants to save you. And this is what it's all about his love, his perfection. He is king. And what a, what a beautiful, humble king he is, a servant leader. And we need to serve him just as he gave his life to serve us. Just beautiful. This last O Antiphon, O Emmanuel, really sums up everything. So these are the seven O Antiphons that are prayed in Advent. And I hope that you enjoyed uh, this examination and explication, hopefully, of these beautiful, beautiful prayers. I'm Cale Clark for The Faith Explained, but hey, now it's time. 
for our Faith Explained Q&A mailbag. We have an excellent question once again today. Let's go for it. Okay, as we open up our Faith Explained Q&A mailbag once again, I want to remind you that you can send me your questions. You can write to me. The email is faith at relevantradio.com, F-A-I-T-H at relevantradio.com. Also follow me on the Twitter app, which is now known as X. My handle is at Kale Clark, C-A-L-E Clark with an E. So I got an email from Michael, and not clear whether he's listening on the new and improved Relevant Radio app, which you can download right now or update, or whether he is listening on one of our 214 radio stations all across the USA. But Michael asks this question. It's a great question. It's short and sweet, but very good. Why does the priest kiss the altar at the end of Mass before leaving with the procession? Signed, Mike. Great question, Mike. And not only does the priest uh, and also, or bishop, or the deacons do it as well, why do they kiss the altar at the beginning and end of Mass? That is a really, really good question. And it's worth some examination because there's a lot of beautiful, it's a simple gesture, but there's also a lot of depth to it. And and there's a lot of profound theological insights we can get from it. And Northwest Catholic has a little uh, piece about this. And we know that the... The kiss obviously is a sign of love, and, and of course, we we it can be a sign of betrayal too. In the case of a Judas kiss, and uh, Judas uh, said, "Hey, here's the guy you need to arrest. I'm going to give him the kiss of friendship, but it's a false friendship. We don't want to do that. We want to truly love Christ. We want our love to be sincere. But in general, a kiss is a token of love, but it's also one of respect. And in the book of Sirach in the Old Testament. In chapter 29, verse 5, it talks about those who would wish to borrow money (laughs) to finance whatever, maybe a mortgage or home renovation, whatever the case might be. So they'd go to a lender and they would kiss the hands of the lender and they would make all these promises and they do it in a really low voice. They'd really be very humble about it. You know, I promise I'll pay the money back, you know, please, please, please. Aren't you glad we don't have to do this today when we go to the bank looking for for some sort of a loan? Uh, we don't have to kiss anybody's hands. But but this is this was an ancient custom. And this was, again, a sign of respect. And so the church has always had these items that people would kiss. Holy relics, for example, the relics of the saints. And maybe you've seen a reliquary or you've been to a, a place that has a, a traveling tour of relics of the saints. And it's very common that people will kiss the relics of these saints and ask for their prayers. The reading of the gospel at Mass. Well, what does the bishop, priest, or deacon do? Kisses the book of the Gospels before he reads the gospel. There's also the kissing of the cross on Good Friday. Here's the wood of the cross, and people venerate the cross. It's not the actual cross, of course, on which Jesus died, but it's a symbol of it. And it's a sign of profound respect and love. And the faithful file up and kiss the cross. And so there are all kinds of things like that. There are, uh, it's very, very, it was it used to be very common uh, when a priest was ordained, especially on the day of his ordination, his hands are still wet with the, with the oils of ordination, that the faithful would kiss the hands of the newly ordained priest, the, the hands that were now able to make Jesus Christ manifest. In, of course, the Eucharist at Mass. Uh, Unbelievable uh, that God grants these gifts to humanity. 
So when a priest or a bishop, a deacon kisses the altar, why do they do it? Well, there's a couple reasons why. They want to honor, of course, this altar of sacrifice. And just like we kiss that cross on Good Friday, because the, the cross was really essentially the, the altar on which the great high priest made the ultimate sacrifice. It's the only sacrifice in salvation history where priest and victim are the same. Jesus, our eternal high priest, offers himself as the sacrifice upon the altar of the cross. So in a sense, this, this altar at Mass represents this altar of the cross, and, and that's one of the reasons why it is kissed by the celebrant. But also, here's another interesting angle as well. The priest, bishop, deacon kind of is a representative of the spouse of Christ, that is the church, because we are collectively the bride of Christ. Jesus is the, the uh, divine bridegroom. And so in, in a sense, it, it's, a, it's really a kiss from the bride, if you will, as the people of God uh, to the divine bridegroom, because the altar also not only represents the cross, but it also represents Christ himself in many theological traditions. Another reason, here's another reason why, you didn't know there's so much to this. Here's another reason why the altar is kissed, because of what is inside the altar. Because in every Catholic altar where Mass is celebrated all around the world, guess what? There is the relic of at least one saint. And the beautiful chapel of the proclamation at Relevant Radio features the relics of not one, but two saints. There's a vial of the blood of St. Jose Maria Escriva, the founder of Opus Dei. And there's also a relic from St. Faustina, the apostle of divine mercy. And of course, we pray the divine mercy chapel every day at 3 p.m. Central on Relevant Radio. And in a recent visit to the worldwide headquarters of Relevant Radio, my daughter Michaela asked Father Rocky, what what part of St. Faustina's body, what, what, is the, what is the relic? And she's seven. And Father Rocky said, I think it's her little toe, but I'm not sure. <laughs> so take it for what you will. But having said that, uh, every altar in every Catholic parish is supposed to have the relic of at least one saint. And, and during the early centuries of the church, of course, when the church was underground, the mass was celebrated in the catacombs. The mass was often celebrated over the tombs of the martyrs. St. Peter's Basilica, of course, is built upon the tomb of Peter himself and underground and the scavi in those underground passageways. That's where the faithful originally celebrated the Mass when the faith was illegal. So, of course, in the fourth century, Constantine legalized the Catholic Church, moved from the underground to the upper ground, if you will, and became an upper room, as, as it were, public buildings, public churches, and we, we, they didn't leave the relics of the saints behind. They were brought up into the altars and, and continue to be very, very important at Mass. So there, there's a lot to this, isn't it? The kissing of the altar. And what a great question by Mike. And if you have a question for me here on the Faith Explained show, you can send it to me a couple of different ways. You can follow me on Twitter, which is now known as X, at Kale Clark, C-A-L-E, Clark with an E. You can send me a message there or ask your question. Just tag me on Twitter or... You can email me, and the address is faith at relevantradio.com, F-A-I-T-H at relevantradio.com. Until next time, God bless you. This is Cale Clark, and this is The Faith Explained on Relevant Radio. Missed an episode? You can always get the podcasts on the brand new and improved Relevant Radio app and share them with a friend. God bless you, and peace. Peace.